Well, as you already know, we are in a series on discovering the Jesus way after deconstruction called Refined. Because not only do we need to refine the truth and the beauty of the Jesus way, we need to have our faith in Jesus continually refined. But I recognize that a lot of people are talking about deconstruction these days. And as I've said throughout this series, I'm not necessarily endorsing everything that people mean when they use that term. For our purposes, deconstructing key aspects of Christian faith isn't about rejection, it's about rejuvenation. We've been using this analogy of home renovation because when you need to renovate a home, sometimes you've got to strip it down to the bare studs, evaluate the wiring, evaluate the plumbing, maybe even evaluate the foundation. To make a home livable, it may be necessary and good to go through demo day. Today we're going to do some of that demo work. I'm going to be stripping down a few key concepts in Christian faith and evaluating how they may need to be updated. Before I tell you what those subjects are, please allow me to remind you of a few things that we discussed uh, last week that you may have missed. This might keep you from throwing tomatoes at me later, so hang with me. Um, remember that we are conceptualizing this series as uh, sticking close to what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus said, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built their house upon the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. This solid rock upon which we're building our practice of faith is the person of Jesus himself, his life and his teachings. This is what we call the Jesus way or the way of Jesus. And at its core, the Jesus way is best encapsulated in what Scott McKnight calls the Jesus creed. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus drilled down on what it means to love God by defining it as being united with Jesus himself, as God's son, becoming Jesus' disciple, and thereby becoming part of the family of God. And he drilled down on what it means to love your neighbor as yourself by defining that love as his self-giving love demonstrated supremely in dying on the cross. So this isn't some ambiguous kind of love that could be mistaken for a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. This is love that is put into action. I also want to remind, remind us that in this series, we're not assuming that everyone is in the same place when it comes to deconstruction, reconstruction. Some here may have never felt the need to rethink any aspects of the Christian faith. Others here may be living in a perpetual reno, kind of like that house in the money pit. For this reason, I ask that you bear with me as I do some of this demo work today. For some of you, this demo work may feel like something you thought about way back in high school or college. But for others, this demo work might feel new and a little bit scary. You may have a voice inside your head saying, will we even be able to rebuild after all this? So I guess I'm asking you to trust me a little bit as we talk about this today. I'm absolutely um, not trying to harm anyone's faith. The goal of this series is to help ground our faith in the way of Jesus so there can be a home in which we can live in. 
Sure, we may need to do a little bit of maintenance from time to time, maybe fix up a room or two, but our, but our hope is that our, we can get to a place where our faith is robust and life-giving. Lastly, I want to remind us that Roots is not a community where we're interested in making clones. We are a community of misfits, and we're proud of that. Um, we deeply value our diversity, and that means that it's perfectly all right if at the end of this message, there's a lot that you disagree with me about. You are welcome to be wrong. That's fine. Um, I will say that I'm not planning on saying anything entirely original. Uh, everything that I'm going to teach this morning has been taught by folks much smarter than me. Um, and I absolutely encourage you to check the sources. I've had mentors in my life who've encouraged me to seek the truth for myself. And I would encourage you to, to do the same. So don't take my word for it. Study uh, and process yourself. Um, without any further ado, I'll introduce you to what we're discussing this morning. Um, we're discussing heaven and hell. Obviously, uh, in this brief presentation, uh, I can't even begin to be comprehensive. So it's likely that you will have questions. That is perfectly all right. I'm going to do my best to point you to some good resources and recommend those. But in addition to that, um, we have also covered a lot in this series, a lot of subjects. So we knew all along that we weren't, weren't going to be able to cover everything. And that is why next week, uh, Roots is going to have its very first Q&R Sunday. Uh, Q&R standing for question and response rather than question and answer. We don't necessarily think we have all the answers. We probably have some decent responses. Um, and this will be a panel Q&R with the entire pastoral team. Pastors Durr and Oshino will be joining me. So please fill out the form on the church website if you have any questions in advance of next Sunday, or you can ask them in real time next Sunday. It'll be fun. Uh, so in just a minute, we're going to start with a couple passages from the New Testament, but before we dive in, can we pray for the Spirit's illumination together? Holy Spirit, once again, we need you. Uh, we need you to shine your illuminating light of revelation upon the scriptures as we open them today. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what it is that you want us to see, hear what it is that you want us to hear, and take away what it is that you want us to take away. I pray that your word this morning would be like a seed that finds good soil, that it would be planted down deep, take root, and bear fruit. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus. God's people said, amen. All right, let's begin with two passages, one from the gospel and one from Paul. First, Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today your, our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Second is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. 
There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from stars in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The word of the Lord. When it comes to my faith deconstruction, reconstruction story, um, I can very rarely point to an exact moment when the coin sort of dropped in the slot for me and my views drastically shifted. But when it comes to thinking about heaven, or more generally my beliefs about the afterlife, there was a moment where I had a seismic shift. It was when we lived in New Orleans and I had recently graduated from Bible college and I used to get together weekly with a group of ministers and sip coffee and philosophize and theologize. This was a lot of fun for me. Um, it was my way of getting sort of like an intellectual fix as I was serving uh, on the staff of a faith-based community center in an under-resourced neighborhood. A couple of the friends that I get together with were campus ministers um, at Tulane University and Loyola University. And one was the director of the Pentecostal campus ministries called Chi Alpha, and the other was the director of the InterVarsity campus ministries. Other folks would cycle in and out of our group, but we were the kind of the, the core three members of the group. At one of these gatherings, somehow the subject of heaven came up, and I heard myself waxing theological, as I would do, uh, about how when we're in heaven, we would shed these cumbersome bodies and our disembodied spirits would inhabit a realm beyond space and time. I even threw in a, a Bible verse from 1 Corinthians 15, ironically, for good measure. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, I said. But then Myron Crockett, my friend who was the university director, said something that hit me like a bolt of lightning. He said, TC, we're going to have bodies in heaven. And all of a sudden, like in the next few seconds, my entire framework for the afterlife began to crumble before my metaphorical eyes. Myron went on, but I started to realize that I suddenly had been completely wrong all along. Heaven wasn't about escaping this bodily material existence. Heaven was about restoration, renewal of this bodily material existence. Suddenly, so many other parts of the scriptures made so much more sense to me. Why would Jesus teach us to pray that God's kingdom rule would come here to earth if we were going to go someplace else? Why would John of Patmos see a vision of the new Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens to earth if our ultimate destiny was to be whisked away to the sky? I suddenly realized that I had some traditional beliefs that I'd absorbed in my church experience that were not actually rooted in what the Bible taught. And that's been a real realization that I think a lot of us have had at some point in our lives, maybe. And that can be a realization that rocks our faith, that not all traditional beliefs are rooted in what the Bible actually teaches. And that's why it's important, I believe, for us to investigate, 
interrogate our traditional beliefs? Where did the idea of this cloudy place with angels, kind of chubby cherubs, right? And harps and wings, like, where did all that come from? Is that in the Bible? Where did this idea of the rapture come from? Did it come from the Bible? If so, why did no one teach it before about 100 years ago? Back in 2013, I wrote a blog post on the subject of the rapture because that summer there were at least two major Hollywood movies supposedly based on the Bible's depiction of the rapture. One of them was called Rapture Palooza. I kid you not. And in an interview with the cast, one of the actors said, go back to the source material. The Bible describes the Antichrist as a very charismatic, handsome leader, right? From a very wealthy family that everyone loves. It, what's really sad is that it's not just Hollywood actors that mistake the Left Behind books for the Bible. I've known a lot of Christians that have done the same thing. Maybe you have too. World-renowned New Testament scholar and historian N.T. Wright recently wrote an article for Time Magazine entitled, The New Testament Doesn't Say What Most People Think It Does About Heaven. In it, he writes, One of the central stories of the Bible, many people believe, is that there's a heaven and an earth, and that human souls have been exiled from heaven and are serving out time here on earth until they can return. Indeed, for most modern Christians, the idea of going to heaven when you die is not simply one belief among others, but the one that seems to give a point to it all. But Wright points out that this wasn't what Christians believed. This was what Greek philosophers known as Platonists believed. To discover what early Christians believed, you have to interpret the New Testament in light of their Jewish worldview. He continues, the followers of the Jesus movement that grew up in that complex environment saw heaven and earth, God's space and ours, if you like, as the twin halves of God's good creation. Rather than rescuing people from the latter in order to reach the former, the creator God would finally bring heaven and earth together in a great act of new creation, completing the original creative process by healing the entire cosmos of its ancient ills. They believed that God would raise his people from the dead to share in and indeed to share his stewardship over this rescued and renewed creation. And they believed all this because of Jesus. When it dawned on me all of those years ago that I had been, I'd had everything basically backwards, um, that our ultimate destiny wasn't to evacuate this planet, but instead for the creator God to restore this planet and the shalom that God had always intended for this planet, this was such an, uh, an impactful shift in my thinking that it actually changed how I viewed the entire mission of the church. Suddenly, my attitude about things like how human beings treat the environment shifted drastically. I could no longer be indifferent about things like pollution and deforestation and uh, the extinction of animal species, turning the oceans into landfills. It also changed my attitude about politics. If God is restoring the whole creation, making all things new, then God is also restoring human relationships even human relationships in society. And this has profound implications for how I conceptualize my politics. I'm not, I'm not talking about donkeys and, and elephants. I'm talking about how our efforts to improve society align with God's vision of shalom. 
So in other words, this shift in how I thought about heaven also shifted what I believe about God's mission in the world. God isn't give, hasn't given up on the world, letting it go to hell in a handbasket. No, God's mission is to make the whole creation whole again. And as we are caught up in that mission, we are invited to share in that mission. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, If the only point is to save souls from the wreck of the world so that they can leave and go to heaven, then why bother to make this world a better place? But if God is going to do for the whole creation what he has done for Jesus in his resurrection, namely bring him back from the dead here on earth, then those who have been rescued by the gospel are called to play a part right now in the advance renewal of the world. God will put the whole world right, this worldview says. He puts people right by the gospel to be part of his putting right project for the world. Christian mission includes bringing real advanced signs of new creation into the present world. In healing, in justice, in beauty, in celebrating the new creation, and in lamenting the continued pain of the old. Can you see how our beliefs about heaven have ethical implications, even political implications? What we believe about heaven might seem peripheral, but it affects what we believe we are called to do and who we are called to be right now. A fantastic resource that I want to recommend to everyone, if you have more questions about uh, rethinking heaven, is Surprised by Hope. This has been a book that a lot of people have, uh, have recommended, a lot of people that... Yeah, go back. That one. Um, a lot of people have recommended it. It's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. At the same time, something similar is true about our view of hell. Just like with our view of heaven, there are also traditional views about hell that many of us have learned through our church experience, which aren't necessarily supported by the biblical data. I'm talking specifically about the view called eternal conscious torment. For a lot of Christians in the United States in particular, this is a self-evident thing that is taught in the Bible, right? That God tortures people in hell forever. Take a second to let that sink in. I'm talking about millions and billions of people who God is currently and forever torturing in hell forever. How could this belief not influence a person's ethics? For example, back in 2009, a debate was raging about what was called enhanced interrogation techniques that the United States government was using on suspected terrorists. Does anybody remember when waterboarding was on the news every night? Everyone learned what waterboarding was all of a sudden. Many people felt that enhanced interrogation techniques was just another word for torture. And they felt like this was wrong, particularly because waterboarding was deemed illegal as a form of torture by the Geneva Convention in 1929. Well, the Pew Research Center polled Americans back then and asked them, do you think the use of torture against suspected terrorists in order to gain important information can often be justified, sometimes be justified, rarely be justified, or never be justified? 
And the group with the highest rate of support for torturing suspected terrorists were evangelical Protestants. 62% believed torture was either sometimes or often justified treatment of suspected terrorists. Evangelical Protestants are also the group with the highest rate of belief in hell, the traditional view of hell, tied with the historic black church, 82%. Now I'm well aware, someone will say, I'm, and I'm well, well aware of this, correlation does not equal causation in, in statistics. That's not my main point here. My main point is not to prove to you beyond the shadow of a doubt that if you believe in the traditional view of hell, you will also support torture. But I do want us to stop and think about the ethical implications of our beliefs. If we think that God is perfect and the highest ideal of love in the universe, and we think simultaneously that God tortures human beings in hell forever, doesn't that mean that perfect love and torture are compatible? No matter how you answer that question, there's an increasing number of people, at least here in the United States, particularly younger adults, who do not think that the traditional view of hell uh, is tenable. They think it's untenable, especially in light of the view of God as a God of love. For example, Green Bay Packers quarterback, Aaron Rodgers recently made headlines, but it wasn't for his past completion percentage. Instead, it was because of this statement he made. I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. Now, obviously, Rodgers is a, a quarterback, not a theologian. And I should add that outlets like Relevant Magazine pointed out that this doesn't necessarily mean that Rodgers considers himself an atheist. He hasn't said that. In fact, he's praised Rob Bell uh, for being an influence on his spirituality. So he probably still considers himself somewhat spiritual, maybe agnostic, I don't know. But it's not entirely clear from the traditional view of hell, um, sorry, it's not entirely clear that the traditional view of hell made Rogers an atheist, that's not the point. The takeaway here for me is that Rogers is simply vocalizing what a lot of people are already thinking, right? What kind of person wants to love and worship a God who tortures people for eternity. Now, I'm not ashamed to admit that rethinking the traditional view of hell as a place of eternal conscious torment has definitely been part of my deconstruction story. When I was a new Christian and I learned this view of hell, it really bothered me. And I went searching the scriptures for where this view is explicitly taught. And there are some passages that would seem to teach it. But what I discovered was that the vast majority of passages that would seem to support the traditional view of hell are found in literary contexts that demand we interpret them non-literally. For example, someone might cite Jesus' teaching in Luke 16, commonly referred to as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In this teaching, Jesus says that the rich man ignored Lazarus who begged at his gate, and when he died, he was carried away to Hades. And we'll get to that word in just a moment, a little bit later. So hold on to that word. But then the story says that the rich man was in torment in Hades. So there, there it is, right there. CTC? Hell, Hades is a place of torment. But if you read on in the story, the rich man also calls out to Abraham in the story. So he can see Abraham, and apparently he can communicate with Abraham 
across some vast chasm. And what he asked Abraham is for Abraham to send Lazarus to dip his finger in water to cool his tongue. That's how the story goes. Are we really expecting people to interpret this parable as a literal description of hell? Someone suffering in hell needs to have their tongue cooled by a drop of water? Has anyone ever been to Arizona? I used to live in New Orleans. A drop of water would not uh, satisfy me when it was 110 degrees in the heat. In reality, this entire story has all the markings of a classic parable of Jesus, which means that the story has a point and the details are not the point of the story. The point of this story in particular is that even though people have Moses and the prophets, the entire Hebrew scriptures, they did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And he says at the end of the parable, if you do not believe Moses and the prophets, you would not even believe someone who was raised from the dead. This is a prediction of Jesus being raised from the dead. And he's saying, if you haven't even believed me to now, you probably won't even believe me when I'm raised from the dead. So it's completely unfounded, in my view, to take this as a literal teaching of the nature of hell. Another place that someone might point to for the traditional view of hell is Revelation. What about the lake of fire, someone will say? To which I might reply with what Martin Luther said about the book of Revelation. He said, they are supposed to be blessed who keep what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what that is, to say nothing of keeping it. Revelation is the only book in the New Testament that is written in a genre called apocalyptic literature, which is a way of talking about very real political conflict in vivid, mythic, and dramatic symbolism. In Revelation, the city of Rome is symbolized as a prostitute, and the Roman Empire is symbolized as a beast rising up out of the sea. So of all the books that we're going to look to for a doctrine of the literal nature of hell, Revelation would not be a wise choice, in my opinion. Unlike the epiphany that I had about heaven, I have not had some you know, moment, dramatic shifting moment, when it comes to my view of hell. I can't point to that lightning bolt moment. But I can point you to two things that I've come to believe that have helped me tremendously on my journey uh, of deconstruction, reconstruction, as it relates to hell. So the first one is this. The word hell that we find in our English Bibles is a translation choice made by committees of Bible translators. It is often a translation of the word Hades or Gehenna. When we look closely, more closely, at the words Hades and Gehenna, and what that might have meant to Jesus' original audience, we don't find the, the eternal conscious torment view that we have come to consider traditional. Hades is the Greek concept of a shadowy underworld where the dead dwell. It was the Greek equivalent of the, what the Old Testament called Sheol. Now there's a problem with the traditional view of eternal conscious torment being applied to either Sheol or Hades. Here's the problem. Neither Sheol nor Hades divided the good from the bad, the wicked from the righteous. According to Sharon L. Baker, author of Raising Hell, no judgment of character or deeds takes place in the concepts of Hades or Sheol at all. 
This week I've been reading Baker's book, and it's a resource that I want to highly recommend to you. It's excellent. Um, you can get it at Thrift Books for $5, which is excellent. Um, she also talks about the word Gehenna, which is the word that uh, Jesus primarily uses uh, and is primarily translated hell in our English Bibles. Here's what Baker writes. When Jesus spoke of hell, he often used the word Gehenna. We translated hell in our English version of the Bible, but hell might not, be, might not accurately describe the Gehenna that Jesus was talking about. The word Gehenna, used 12 times in the Testament, comes from the Aramaic Hebrew word Gehenna. It means Valley of the Son of Hinnom, from Joshua 15.8. This was an actual valley located southwest of the city of Jerusalem. Gehenna was a place with a very sordid history. It had been the site of child sacrifices to Molech and Baal. It had been the site of mass graves for soldiers after wars fought in that region. And long before Jesus came on the scene, it had been Jerusalem's garbage dump. It was where all types of trash were dumped and burned. I'm going to spare you the gory details that Baker goes into because they're nasty. You can read them for yourself, though, later. But it was literally a place where the flames never ceased and the worm never died because it was continually renewed with trash and fire. Jesus wasn't talking about people literally going to that specific valley. He was obviously using this place metaphorically. Whatever judgment, whatever separation between God and humans is being taught by Jesus, it's not being taught with literal imagery, it's being taught with metaphorical imagery. So the million dollar question is this, what is the reality to which Jesus was pointing? And this leads me to the second thing that I've learned that's really important in my shift in thinking about hell. I've come to realize this. Whatever reality of judgment and separation from God hell points to, it has to comport with the character of God revealed in Christ crucified. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. Whatever reality of judgment and separation from God hell points to, it has to comport with the character of God revealed in Christ crucified. What I mean by this, that is this. I don't find the biblical data about hell entirely clear. I think it's muddy. It shows up a lot in metaphorical, figurative imagery and apocalyptic literature in the Bible. What I do find clear in the New Testament is the teaching that in Jesus, we have come to understand the very character of God. That Jesus reveals perfectly the love, the mercy, the compassion, the grace of God. Amen? Is that true? That's what I've come to believe is clearly taught in the New Testament. So, whatever I, whenever I find something that is unclear, I go to what is clear and I work my way backwards. I go from clear to unclear. The supreme revelation of God's character is found in Jesus' self-giving love demonstrated on the cross. So the cross is the pinnacle of our interpretive lens. It is how we must interpret all things through for me, and I'm just saying for me, eternal conscious torment does not comport with the character of God revealed in Jesus. I can't personally imagine the same Jesus who calls out to God from the cross, asking the Father to forgive his murderers, being the same Jesus who tortures human beings in hell forever. That's just me. Maybe that's just me. But thankfully, this is also true. 
that the traditional view of hell is not an article of Orthodox Christian faith. It does not show up in either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Christians have actually conceptualized hell in a lot of different ways throughout church history. And there are alternative conceptions of hell to the traditional view of eternal conscious torment. I'm just going to give you two of them. You can do your own research on, on others. One of the alternatives is called the conditional view, also called annihilationism. In this view, ultimate judgment is that persons cease to exist. This view is not, does not affirm the immortality of the soul. In fact, there are passages that seem to straightforwardly, straightforwardly uh, affirm this view. Take, for example, Matthew 10. Jesus says, and by the way, this is not in the context of a parable. Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In fact, the Bible uses destruction most often to describe ultimate judgment, not everlasting torture. And I also think that C.S. Lewis makes a, a really good description of hell when he describes it as the outer rim where being fades away into non-entity. I think that makes a lot of sense for me. If God is the ground of all being, then separation from God would seem to entail logically non-being, non-existence. But there is another alternative view of hell, and it's called uh, purgation, or at least I'm calling it purgation. A lot of biblical support, a lot of, a lot of the Bible gives support to the idea that final judgment is a refining fire. A purging of all that is wicked in us by the God who is himself a consuming fire. This seems to be what Paul is talking about when he refers to the day of judgment in 1 Corinthians. He says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, the day of judgment, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder receives a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though as only one escaping through the flames. I think that both the conditional or annihilationist view and the purgation view take more seriously the biblical imagery of God as a consuming, purifying fire. Either the fire of God's holiness utterly destroys the condemned in a final judgment, or the fire of God's holiness destroys all that is wicked within humanity, purifying humanity and purging it of all sinfulness and leaving only that which retains the image of God. And I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I have not landed on a view. Either one of these could potentially be the biblical view in my estimation. Um, but to me, either of these views is superior ethically and biblically to the view of eternal conscious torment. But I want to say clearly that wherever you are on your faith journey, whether you are in, in relationship to deconstruction, reconstruction, uh, whether this is the first time you've ever considered rethinking the view of hell or heaven, or whether you've gone through rounds and rounds and rounds of reconstruction and deconstruction, I want to encourage you with this. You are not alone. 
that we are on this journey of faith together, and we aren't the first ones to ask these questions. I want to encourage you that having all the answers really isn't the point of faith anyways. Go back and listen to Emily's fantastic message on faith. That the point of faith is to place our trust in Jesus. He's the one reaching out his hand to us saying, will you trust me? And even after we've taken that step of trust, we still have to wrestle with the questions. We still have to live with the ambiguity. And I want to remind you that the pastoral staff have made ourselves available. You can sign up to meet with one of us if you have questions, if you have struggles, um, especially if you've experienced what, uh, you know, mind break as well as heartbreak um, in church context. And you just want to talk about the pain that you've experienced. That's something that you should reach out for. And I want to remind you that if you have questions, you can submit them on the website. And you can ask them in real time next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that uh, this message was a lot. And I know that there's a lot of questions still that remain. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God that is patient with us. That you are not a God that demands that we know everything all at once. That we are confident, 100% certain of everything we believe. Thank you that you are a God that walks with us along this journey. And I'm also grateful for the ways in which you've, you've supplied me with mentors. Who walked alongside me when I haven't been certain. When I've been um, filled with questions. When I've been on my own journey of reconstruction, deconstruction. I pray that Roots would be that kind of community. I pray we would be a community that supports one another, loves one another through the difficult questions and through the process, the emotional toil that questioning takes and the pain and the heartache that we've experienced when we've been hurt in church contexts where we weren't allowed to question, when we weren't allowed to explore. I pray that we would be the kind of community uh, that would demonstrate the cross-shaped love of Jesus to one another that self-giving, self-sacrificial And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to shine your light upon the scriptures and help us to understand more and more as we take the posture of faith-seeking understanding. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.